Hello, welcome to the Vineyard Cardiff podcast. Today we're joined by me, Dave, as I carry on our series, A Praying Life. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello, it is great to be with you. Um, We are in the second part of our series, A Praying Life, which is falling within our sort of our larger series, like our meta series, Live Like Jesus. Um, And the sort of basic principle behind that is that there are these two pedals that we are pushing on, be with Jesus and do what Jesus did. And that as we push on those pedals, we are transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. And this series, The Praying Life, falls within that. Now, last week, James talked about uh, what prayer is and why often we can find it so difficult. Uh, He talked about prayer being about presence, partnership and power as sort of three key elements of it. Um, And he also uh, taught us in Pete Gregg's language to keep it simple, keep it real and keep it up. And uh, today I am launching into verse two of Luke 11, starting with the Lord's Prayer. Um, And the Lord's Prayer is is Jesus' response. His disciples see him praying and they see something that they want and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And the Lord's Prayer, which is recorded twice in the Gospels, one in Matthew 6 and once in Luke 11 here, is Jesus' response to that question. And so Luke 11, verse 2, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, for many of you, that will sound really familiar. For for some of you, it might not be the one uh, that you did in school assemblies. It might not sound exactly the same. Now, that is because the version that's recorded in Matthew 6 is slightly longer um, and is slightly more common as the one that is memorised, but they are, in essence, the same. And so I want to start today focusing in on the first half of verse 2 and what it teaches us about our prayer lives, how we can have a praying life. And so I want to look first at this phrase Jesus uses before he's even telling them what to say. He says, when you pray, when you pray. Now, we can find prayer easy or hard. We can find it an absolute joy or a chore. And that can change as well through different seasons of our life. But prayer is an essential part of all of our discipleship. And prayer is basically is every form of communication that we have with God. Um, But in Matthew 6, 6, Jesus is clear that there is one form of prayer that is especially important in our relationship with God, and that is time alone with God. Matthew 6, 6, he says this, but when you pray, there it is again, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father. Now, This is something that Jesus didn't only teach about, but he modelled. He spent a lot of time doing this. So we read in Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In Luke 5.16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Matthew 14.23, after he dismissed them, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. Mark 6.46, after leaving them, he went onto a mountainside to pray. Mark 14.32, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, you sit here while I go and pray. 
And it's interesting to note that three of those examples come from Mark's gospel. Now, um, Mark's gospel is often known as the hurried gospel. It is sort of this relentless breakneck speed of an account of Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection. Um, He's famous, Mark, for using the word immediately, again and again, immediately this happened, immediately this happened. And it's interesting for us to note that for someone who clearly valued relentless pace, Mark still recognised the importance that Jesus put on slowing down for prayer. And the reason that is important for us to notice is because we live in a culture that values relentless pace. And so within that culture, we too have to recognise the value of being intentional about carving out time to sit quietly and pray alone with God. If we want to live like Jesus, we need to make this a priority of ours. The fact that it is culturally difficult doesn't mean that we should do it less. It means that we have to fight for it more. And this is something that I have been learning a lot about over the last couple of years. Um, So when lockdown hit, uh, I suddenly found, you know, Sunday services were taken away, small groups were taken away, and we had them online, but it was a season, as I'm sure you will all remember, of, of stripping away, of suddenly losing a lot of the of the routine and the rhythm of our faith. And for me, it was this real, this real awakening, this real recognizing that I was like, oh, without the Sunday service, without the weekly small group, my faith is missing something. My discipleship is missing something. And it was that regular time alone with God to speak to him and to listen to him. And So I just got to this point where I was like, this is something I really have to prioritise. I really have to push into this. And so Rach, my wife and I started trying to put that time in, put that, we, we, for us, we were like, right, let's try and have half an hour each day. Now, one of the benefits of lockdown, especially in the early days, is there was nothing else to do. Um, And so we did have that space to do that. And and we started doing it. It was like, oh, this is, this is great. Like, this is what I've wanted. But if, if we somehow do find the time and I sit down and I worked out what to do, because that again, and I've preached on that before, once you sat down, sometimes it's really hard to know what to do. If you have found the time, you have worked out what to do, how do you make sure that you do it the next day and the next day and the next day? For me, a big breakthrough was realizing that actually slightly longer time was easier than a shorter time. So lots of people will say like, oh, you know, if you've never done this before, just try five minutes a day. Um, which I tried, but I found I was, I was really stressed by five minutes. I would sit down, I'd open my Bible and be like, oh, oh, I've only got five minutes. I can't read it properly. I can't study it. Okay, I'll pray. Who am I going to pray for? Oh, my five minutes is up. And I found it super stressful. Um, actually, giving myself more time, giving myself about half an hour was easier. Although, you know, I had to move a few things to fit it into the morning. It actually was easier to spend a uh, longer time. And, I want, you know, I want to be really honest over the last two years it was, it was really great at first. The first week was like, oh, this is, this is so life-giving. Probably the second, the third week was really tough trying to maintain that. And then over the last two years, I, it's been really up and down. There have been times when I've absolutely loved it. And I you know, I've been, cannot wait to get to my prayer time. And there have been times when it's, it's felt like a real chore, a real obligation. I'm like, oh, do I really have to choose this? Um, but... One of the things James was talking about last week is keep it up. There is, a, there is a joy and a value of persistence in prayer. And two years in now, I'm in a place where 
probably if I miss my quiet time with God for two or three or four days in a row, I'm getting to the point where I, I'm really missing it and I really need that time. And that's a place I've wanted to be at in my faith for years. Um, and suddenly now that is where I find myself. I, I am more like Jesus because he could not go long times without spending time with his father, without being in his presence. That's the presence, again, that James was talking about last week. So that carving out of, of time to be with God is something that Jesus taught us to do and he modelled. And the second thing that I wanted to, to pick up on is this word, our, our father, our father. Now, it's worth noting that in Luke's version that I read out earlier, the word our isn't there. Um, but in Matthew's version, in Matthew 6 that we talked about, uh, it is there. Also, later on in Luke's um, version of the Lord's Prayer, it's clear that he is teaching a group of multiple people how to pray to God. So um, it is fair for us to assume the word our. And I think it's important to because the word our does one really key thing. It invites us to share the type of relationship that Jesus had with his father. So earlier in Luke, in Luke 10, 21 to 22, Jesus uses the word father when he's praying five times in quick succession. It says this, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom his Son chooses to reveal him. So their relationship is very, very clear. It is one of Father and Son. But what is revolutionary about this prayer is that Jesus also applies that relationship to his followers. If you are my follower, he is your Father. Now, I don't think anyone would have batted an eyelid if they'd said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus had said, when you pray, pray to my father. But that is not what he says. He invites us into that level of intimacy. First, he models it so that we know what it looks like. And then staggeringly, he invites us to share that level of intimacy. Something that um, Andy Croft says. So Andy Croft um, works for Soul Survivor and um, I grew up, I'm, a, I'm the Soul Survivor generation. So he was really influential on me growing up and my faith and still is. Um, and he says this, the first and the simplest and yet the greatest and the highest lesson when it comes to prayer is to understand who we come to and how we come. We come to our father and we come as children. And this invitation to intimacy changes the way we pray. It gives us entitlement. Now, I use this word very carefully because it can mean a lot of things that I do not mean here. But literally, we are entitled. We have the right title to come into God's presence as Jesus did. If we think of um, a kingdom, like an old school kingdom with the king and the courts and everything, it's only sort of princes, princesses, lords and ladies who are allowed into the court because of their title. They have the right title. By inviting us into the level of intimacy that Jesus had with the father, 
we are invited into an identity that changes our prayer life. It changes the way that we pray. We're invited into the identity of a child of God. And so this means, you know, we can throw out the sort of stuffy formal prayers that sometimes we think we have to do, um, which often like sound more like you're dictating a letter. So I've definitely been guilty of this in the past, you know, praying is like, you know, for the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today was hard, but I'm holding up because I shouldn't complain. Your kind regards and amen, David. That is that's sort of this formality to prayer that we just don't need because he is our father. Instead, we can come to him and say, Dad, I'm done. I'm knackered. Help me. And not only are we allowed to come into God's presence like this, we should. We are encouraged to. If I went home and knocked on my parents' door uh, and they opened it and, and then I said, oh, hello, um, is it all right if I come in? At best, they'd be confused. They'd be like, why are you being weird? And at worst, they'd be offended. I don't need that level of formality with them. I'm their son. Instead, I knock on the door, they open it and say, hello, it's me. And I just walk straight in. I don't need to follow the sort of normal social conventions of going into someone's house because of my level of intimacy and relationship with the owners of the house. We know the owner of the house. We know God as our father. So we don't need to stand on ceremony. We can be honest. We can be real. So we must carve out time to be with our father. And when we do, we can speak to him like we are his children. So lastly, I just wanted to look at the next bit that Jesus says, which is a really strange pairing. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. And it's a really strange Two strange things to find next to each other. One is sort of this real intimacy, father, dad. And the other is hallowed be your name, this reverence, this awe. And so pairing them together, what does that mean for our prayer life? How do we balance them? So firstly, if he is our father, we are his children. What does it mean to pray as a child? To pray as a child speaks to their father. And obviously, there, there's a hundred things that we could pick up on here, but I think there's one key thing, and it is that children speak without pretense. They are honest. There is no pretend. There is no sort of concept of what is the right thing to say and the wrong thing to say. In Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, from which we have taken the title of this series, he says this, he wants us to be without pretense when we come to him in prayer. Instead, we often try and be something we're not. We begin by concentrating on God, but almost immediately our minds wander off in a dozen different directions. The problems of the day push out our well-intentioned resolve to be spiritual. We give ourselves a spiritual kick in the pants and try again, but life crowds out prayer. We know that prayer isn't supposed to be like this, so we give up in despair. We come with this feeling that we have to have a pretense, we have to have a mask up, but that is not the way that children communicate with their father. I, um, many of you will know I have two kids and I was re my eldest is three. I was reading him a bedtime story, put, you know, putting him to bed, doing that routine. And uh, we try and, he's got a little kid's Bible. We try and read a story from that each night. And uh, I think it was the story of the, 
um, the widow who puts in two copper coins and Jesus observes this and says, look, she's putting in way more than these rich people who've poured their gold in because they've, they've given out of their wealth. Um, and, you know, trying to, trying to be a good dad, I, we read this and then I, I, I'm trying to draw out the lesson. We're like, wow, isn't it amazing? You know, we can be generous to God. We can give to God and we can trust God. He will provide for us. Um, and my son, like, was, was getting it. And he was like, wow, that is amazing. I was like, yeah, isn't that great? And he was like, yeah. And then he sort of paused and looked at me and was like, why are your eyebrows thick like your beard? And I was just like... Oh, okay. It just made me laugh so much because we, it's not like he wasn't engaged in the profound thing. He really was. But he'd done that for a second and a half and that was enough. And he'd moved on to the totally obscure, unexpected thing. But it was what was on his mind. The point is, we have to push away from this idea that there are good and bad things to pray about, that there is like a hierarchy, an order of importance And God is only interested in our top, good, important things that we want to pray about. And we have to push away from that because that is not how we are told to pray. We are told to pray as children talk to their father. And that is without pretense. It is absolutely honest. Now, this metaphor of how children speak to their parents is used a lot when talking about this, and rightly so because it is very biblical. But it is really important to remember that God is not a normal father. We all will have different relationships with our father from absolutely none whatsoever to longstanding and positive. But we have to remember that our relationship with our earthly father is not indicative of our relationship with our heavenly father because God is the perfect father. He is holy, he is powerful and he is good. And this is what the phrase, hallowed be your name, is there to remind us of. As we talked about in Philippians 2, our relationship with God also needs to include reverence and awe. But this reverence, God's absolute holiness, it shouldn't detract from our intimacy with him. True reverence and awe draws people in. So I am... Well, I went on a gap year when I was 19 and I was in a place called Arusha in Tanzania, which is really close to Mount Kilimanjaro. And a few of us had talked, you know, did we want to go and climb it? And we were like, well, you know, it's pretty high. It sounds quite hard. It's a bit expensive. It would be cool. Maybe, probably not. And, and we'd kind of landed on probably not. And then uh, we went on a day trip to Moshi, which is the town at the base of Kilimanjaro. And uh, it, was, it was just awesome to see the mountain but um, the top is often shrouded in cloud, and, and it was, and so we hadn't seen it. And we were like, oh, well, like, that mountain's cool. Look at that. No, I don't think we will. And as we were driving home, the clouds got cleared away, and we saw the top. And on the bus, there was just this, like, hushed silence as we just saw the entirety of this enormous mountain. And there was just this awe of, you know, the wonder of creation, And all of us were just like, we've got to climb that. We've got to do it. We've got to get up there. And we did. We climbed it a couple of uh, months later or so. The point is, the awe and the reverence we, we felt for that, for that awesome moment of seeing God's creation, it didn't make us pull away. It didn't make us draw back. It drew us in. 
And often when we have a wrong idea of what this, this sort of reverence for God means, it, we think it means we should, you know, run away from him, but it, it, it mustn't, it must draw us in. True reverence and awe draws people in. It shouldn't decrease our intimacy. Father, hallowed be your name. It's not there to make us feel less intimate with him. It should increase our amazement that we are invited into such a level of intimacy in the first place. When we come before God as his children in awe and wonder at his name, our response is not just a wonderful, a fruitful prayer life. It's also worship. The intimacy that we have with God, the reverence and awe that we have for his name leads us to worship and to closeness. So to come into land, in our culture, the need to make time for God, to carve out space and be in his presence is as important as it has ever been. But we have to fight for it harder. We have to be intentional. We have to have a plan for how we're going to make it happen. And when we do, when we have that time, we can come before him as a child. We don't have to stand on ceremony. We don't have to follow formality. We can be honest with him. There's no pretense. There's no mask. We talk to him about what we want to talk to him about, what we need to talk to him about. And we can listen to his care and his love, his wisdom, that perfect parental care. And we can be in awe that we are allowed into his presence like this, that we are invited to share the relationship that Jesus had with the Father. And we can let that awe draw us still closer and draw us into worship.